at ease, at ease. Today we'll be enjoying an early World War II dramedy by legendary director Billy Wilder. An ensemble piece, the film tells the story of American airmen in a German POW camp. While the overarching narrative concerns one of the inmates betraying them to their hapless German captors, the story is largely a series of light vignettes in which the soldiers get into all kinds of hijinks. From listening to the BBC on a clandestine radio, to distilling alcohol and cross-dressing for the big Christmas party. The rat in their midst transmits information to the Germans that one of the men is responsible for sabotaging a military train. And in order to help their comrade escape, the group closes ranks. Eventually, the informant is caught, and it's the last man anyone suspected. He is sent outside the barracks at night to distract the guards while two men escape the prison. It's a classic from 1953 that inspired innumerable imitations, and it's our movie today on Friendly Fire. Achtung, sergeants! It's Stalag 17. You're listening to Friendly Fire, a war movie podcast where two of the hosts are tunneling for freedom but won't let me in on the escape plan. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I liked that. Nailed that it. Like real, real radio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just mad at you because you keep winning all my cigarettes, Ben. <laughs> you're, you're so jealous of my, of, uh, you know, these days it would be, it would be Max, right? It would be cans of mackerel. It really, like, it's a movie that answers the question, how much are you allowed to enjoy being a prisoner of war <laughs> before the other prisoners get super angry at you? I, uh, I watched this last night with my wife, and her take was that the <laughs> it, it wasn't so much a war movie as a big sleepover with a bunch of boys. <laughs> <laughs> it was a tough sell because I was like, it's a... It's a prison camp movie set in World War II to my Jewish wife is not necessarily like, hey, let's dive in head first, you know, but uh, she's the one that bailed on Saving Private Ryan after like three minutes, though, right? Just to like <laughs> level set where she's at on uh, W slash R slash T war movie. No, she, she made it all the way through, but uh, I, I did get a big rise out of her when I joked that the D-Day scene was the whole film. I don't know about you, but it always makes me sore when I see those war pictures. All about flying leathernecks and submarine patrols and frogmen and gorillas in the Philippines. Are you guys familiar with Hogan's Heroes? Did you ever see that TV show? No. I mean, I've heard of it. I only am familiar with Hogan's Heroes references. <laughs> like, I know the <laughs> trivia, but I've never seen the show. That's good. That's good. This is a nice, this is a nice instance of complete generation gap between you <laughs> you youngsters you whippersnappers and me who was raised by an electronic babysitter that's what we used to call it back in the 70s <laughs> uh, but hogan's heroes is a tv show a sitcom the the tv production was sued by the the writers of this film you know for just infringing upon the whole concept and uh i think they lost the suit but really truly hogan's heroes is a television sitcom that came directly from this film, Stalag 17. Like every single one of the, of the uh, conceits of the movie, it was just a tiny little switch, tiny little turn of those conceits to turn it into just a television sitcom, like a, like a laugh track sitcom. It was a sound alike, huh? When this film was in production, I think the, they were pretty nervous about making a prison camp movie at the time. And that was even before a lot of the Holocaust stuff had truly come out. Yeah. Pretty early in the 50s and, and the Holocaust footage, that was kind of a slow rollout culturally. It wasn't, didn't all hit the news waves right away. We were busy, we were busy kissing nurses in Times Square right at the end of the <laughs> war. We didn't have the guts, I guess, to look at it directly. Did I but read prison recently camp that the Germans didn't even really know about it until like the 70s? In the 1970s, there was a television miniseries called The Holocaust, and it was the first a lot of us heard about it in the mm. 70s. Wow. And I think The Holocaust was broadcast in Germany. And here in America, it was, it was one of those television events where everybody 
in the country was all sitting down at the TV together because there were only three TV channels. But I think when they when they broadcast it in Germany, it was a massive national event uh, to watch this thing because you know it, it was dramatized. But it, it seemed like a big revelation. Anyway, the at, so a prison camp movie it didn't have any Holocaust implications in 1952. Everybody was worried about it just strictly because we had heard how bad those camps were for our GIs, you know, the yeah. Japanese prison camp or whatever. This is like that a, accounts for why it's so slapstick. This this is a movie that happened during the Hayes Code. Producer transmission. The Hayes Code, named after Will H. Hayes, was the set of moral guidelines applied to most United States motion pictures released by the major studios from 1930 to 1968. It prohibited nudity, homosexuality, and the ridicule of religion, among many other rules. Like, for all its depiction of the, like, grimness of, of that, and it really, like, vacillates crazily between slapstick and moments of just like utter bleakness it's it's still like pretty squeaky clean like everybody's yeah. like pretty well behaved there's nothing antisocial about any of the characters even the nazis good morning sergeants nasty weather we are having eh it's 1953 when this movie came out I found the portrayal of the Germans vastly different than the portrayal of the Japanese in the same war, based on the movies that we've seen so far. Was this a coping mechanism in some way? Like, why why are the Japanese portrayed as so uh, taciturn and professional, while the Germans are portrayed as uh, a little bit goofy and <laughs> aloof? Was that an, an well, intentional choice, or is that just a way to tell the story? I, I think um, I think during the war, the Japanese were dehumanized. You couldn't do that to the Germans because, you know, the I mean, half the population of the Midwest was German. But I think the I think the war movies that we've seen that have portrayed the Japanese as businesslike and taciturn, as you say. That was groundbreaking, probably, for how much respect was paid to the Japanese as an adversary mm. instead of a, a racist caricature. Um, and the Germans were so diabolical, but at the same time, this is the crazy thing about the Nazis, right? The, just looking at their uniforms, strictly their uniforms, they are both the best uniforms ever devised in terms of communicating sinister badassery <laughs> and also their total clown suits what characterized them was overreaching right because we didn't in the united states we didn't really even know about the depredations of the eastern front yet well i mean i wonder about that because i mean this is written and directed by billy wilder who like was a viennese jew like he he fled the nazis right so i i mean i, I imagine he knew more than the average American about what had gone down in this war. Yeah, but he's trying to sell this story to to mom and pop USA. Yeah. And it really reads the the film really reads like a stage production, which it which it was. Yeah. Right? There's mm -hmm. there's just one set, basically. And it feels like a it feels very Broadway. It's part of that moment in in Hollywood too of not knowing how to strike a not knowing how to strike a tone. I mean, I, I I watched this movie for the first time when I was a kid and I loved it. And I think I watched it a second time somewhere in my 20s and I thought it was you know, a fun romp, I guess. And when we started this podcast, I assumed that we would be watching movies like this all the time because this <laughs> is kind of this is kind of my memory of what a World War II movie was right a yeah. lot of just like i mean when we when don rickles showed up uh in the summary movie we all kind of or at least i certainly braced myself for like oh please no like nobody slip on a banana peel please <laughs> <laughs> and he was so restrained in that film but this movie just rickles me from start to finish 
the only thing missing was a guy slipping on a banana peel. <laughs> and I've, I found the movie really hard to enjoy this time. For that reason, I was just like, what are we, I mean, all the, all the, the romance between animal and his, his caretaker, whatever that character's name was. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, just Shapiro. like, get these guys off. The, yeah. Shapiro, Shapiro and animal. I was like, get these guys off the screen. How are they advancing the story at all? So it was a it animal was, is it was also the one who says the darkest thing in the entire movie, which is he he almost turns to camera and says, "I hate this life." And I think that's like an expression of a feeling that we have never gotten in any of the more movies we've watched. For as silly as this one is, like no one's actually emoted that and said that so succinctly and honestly. You have to put your socks in my breakfast. And they gave it to fucking animal. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe had to. Yeah, it might have been too heavy to give it to William Holden. Holden, right. who was almost, uh, his part was almost given to Charlton Heston, except Heston was, uh, was too bright of a star. The reason that they cast uh, William Holden as the lead was because uh, he was edgy, coming off of Sunset Boulevard. He was dark and brooding in a way that, that was necessary. For his part. Could you imagine right. Chuck Heston <laughs> as Septon? No, that would have been a, a completely different film. You can have your cigarettes when you rip them from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> I, o I only smoke cigars and foreigners. <laughs> what I can't believe is he won an Oscar for that role. Yeah, what is generally perceived as a uh, we feel sorry for you Oscar, like a, like one of those lifetime achievement Oscars. But even so, to think of this movie as being the vehicle for a best actor award, say what? <laughs> when that guy wings Mein Kampf at his head and misses his head by like an inch and, and he, he doesn't, doesn't even flinch... flinch and there's a there's that's also, how you win an Oscar right there. There's also a straight. <laughs> Mine Kampf in his is neck. like a ten pound. Yeah, Mine Kampf is like a ten pound book. Yeah, uh, I could I could replace the statue in the beginning of Indiana Jones with Mine Kampf, and it wouldn't set off that uh, <laughs> giant rolling boulder. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm -hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. I watched this movie when I was about 15 with my father. I was just so baffled by by the tone <laughs> that uh, I had a tough time, like really feeling like I could embrace it. But one thing I did really appreciate was how like how taut the story is. I mean, it's so it 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 plays so casual, but there's a really tense and interesting mystery that gets solved at kind of the halfway mark, and then the kind of main character-ish guy, Sergeant Sefton, is, has this, like, incredibly tricky dilemma because he knows who the, who the Nazi is in the bunk, but he doesn't have a good way of exposing that guy without 
exposing the bunk to extraordinary risk or you know, exposing some other bunk to extraordinary risk. To have the restraint to reveal that moment halfway through is something that in a modern film would come uh, 20 minutes before the end. And for as efficient as it was in telling its story, like, this is a two-hour film. This is a big meal of a film. And and when it started with the tone that it had, I was I was with you, John. This is the first time I've, I, had, I had seen this movie, though, but I didn't know if I could take two hours of the sort of slapstick I was seeing. You guys are right. It was it's a real psychological thriller at that point because mm-hmm. it's not enough that he's discovered the information that will exonerate him because he's you know it seems like his life is in danger through half this movie mm-hmm. he's found this he's found out the the culprit and doesn't know doesn't know how to play it i mean that was that's very it started to feel noir there and started to feel complicated in a way that i think maybe to contemporary audiences that was the thing that made it such an interesting film i was trying to i, I was trying to place it in its time and i realized like the other movies that it was i mean the movies that were its forefathers were marx brothers movies or you know bing crosby war movies on the road with a style of just sort of like you know there there weren't there certainly were war movies that were more realistic but this was coming from that style of entertainment which we don't even have anymore really like unless it's uh Unless you're talking about Happy Gilmore or something, <laughs> but like like Happy Gilmore wouldn't they wouldn't dare make a war movie. I mean, I guess I guess is Happy Gilmore on, still our, f- on our list? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what that's was the not war- on our list, but Down Periscope is. <laughs> what was the the movie they made not very long ago where Robert Downey Jr. was in blackface? Tropic Thunder. Tropic yeah. Thunder, right? Is is that an example of a contemporary war movie that's played for laughs? I mean, I it's just like don't, a meta I don't... war movie though, because they're making a a war movie. It's oh, like about right, right, he's right. he's playing an actor who has made this choice, so it's okay. I see, I see. <laughs> but you've hit on the the thing I think that made this seem like a good movie at the time. That was that wasn't just um, that wasn't just like potato soup gags. <laughs> This barracks is jinx. Yeah, and like the dilemma he has is like, so he knows who the Nazi is. It's a guy who grew up in the U.S. and had German uh, language skills and German heritage and returned to the fatherland for the war effort. And uh, he, this guy has been serving as the kind of the like head of security for the bunk for all of their little machinations and escape attempts and everything um he's been he's been transmitting information to the guards and that has put the life of a captured lieutenant at risk uh, because he like has has the scoop on how this guy blew up an ammo train the concern is that like if he gets shifted to another bunk like if if they realize that they're on to him he gets just gets shifted to another bunk and some other group of guys has the same problem on their hands you know, secret Nazi in their midst. But uh, if he, like, if he kills him, then maybe the Nazis will kill everybody, right? Right. It's a, it's a tough dilemma, and they've uh, taken great pains not to make the character of Sifton that likable. Like, he's, like, you sort of sympathize with what a tough spot he's in, but he's also been a real prick, even despite the fact that he wasn't the secret Nazi. <laughs> no one likes a contrarian better. Uh, there's a there's a prison escape early on, and he bets on the Nazis. It's not a good look <laughs> with the rest of the bunkmates. I don't think. Well, I remember a time. I don't remember which watching of this film it was for me. Maybe both earlier ones, but I definitely watched this movie once where I felt very secure that he was the culprit and now i watch it and i can't imagine a time when i wouldn't have known enough about narrative to know (laughs) that he couldn't be the culprit right because there's no film then it's just like everybody thinks he's the one and he's the one so the end you know like but watching this as a as a younger person 
he was so unlikable and the surface level evidence pointed so directly at him even now, but I think especially then, you're not used to the protagonist, the hero of the movie being such a, like, a, <laughs> a jerk such face. a drag. Yeah, just a jerk face, right? I totally agree. I mean, and I can't... The I, guy who turns out to be the villain is the best looking guy in the prison. He is like the quintessential sheepskin lined jacket fighter jock looking guy. Like, yeah. he didn't seem to be a suspect at all at any point. He's Until it's finally revealed. Picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue, right? <laughs> That's right. Same guy. <laughs> same yeah, guy. Peter Graves. Did you ever hang around the gymnasium? There was a scene right at the end where William Holden drops down under the barrack and starts like crab crawling out underneath the barrack on his way to save the lieutenant. It was really like kind of exciting. I wanted at that moment to see an entire movie of William Holden being like a, a commando. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you definitely got the sense that he was a legit soldier in the way that everyone else was too uh, puffy and comedic to really be believable in that way. Before he goes down into that hole, he has some of the best uh, outshots you could get in a movie like this. He's like, I'm probably never going to see you guys again, but if I do, fuck off. And then he's down yeah. the hole. Yeah, so, <laughs> so <good>. great. <laughs> like you can drink all my crap wine that I have in my Footlocker. <laughs> you guys are a bunch of assholes. If I ever run into any of you bums on a street corner, just let's pretend we never met before. At the risk of being shot down, I would uh, I would like to uh, propose a game uh, here on the program today, and that game is who's got the best at ease. <laughs> So there were a few guys who were members of the original theatrical cast. Eddie's! And I think that guy was one of the ones that was from the play. And then Shapiro and Animal were both from the play. Wow. Mm. And I think got Tony Awards or something. I mean, they were so loved in the play that, that they made the transition to the film. But what I couldn't understand is that Eddie's guy... Like, if you're going to take one other person from the play, is it really going to be that guy? That guy's voice is outrageous. <laughs> Just outrageous. He's really speaking to the back row. <laughs> At ease! And he's really, he's got that voice that we think of as as sort of old-timey movie voice or yeah. old-timey actor voice. And I wonder, that's another one of those things where I don't think, I don't think we can ever put ourselves back in that time to to realize, like, what exactly that voice was communicating to people because it had to have been more familiar to them that somebody would have been talking like this. Ah! <laughs> like that's a, that's a thing you see in enough movies back then that it, he's a, it's a guy, it's a type. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't know what it is. We don't know what that type is. Here's a little something from father Murray. When we do it, we're doing the guy from the movie, but they're doing a guy right. from real life. Right. There's a mid-Atlantic component to it that's just sort of like, step right up, everybody. This Blue kind crabs, of guy, here, yeah. get them now. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really. Is it too early in the program for a moment of pedantry? Let's hit it. Okay, Price says he was in the 366th Bomb Squadron of the 35th Bomb Group at Chelveston. The 366th belonged to the 305th group at Chelveston. The 35th group flew anti-submarine patrol for British Guyana. In addition, Lieutenant Dunbar states he was with the 92nd bomb group at Waddington. Waddington was an RAF bomber command base. The 92nd was based at Poddington. <laughs> I was going to wow. say Poddington. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't that believe those assholes screwed that up. That is truly pedantic. That's the <laughs> most pedantic thing you've ever come up with. <laughs> that is peak internet commenter right there. Yeah. When Schultz takes the phone call from his commander <laughs> and appears to put on his boots for the call in order to oh, make exactly the sound he of did. clicking the heels. <clears throat> and then exactly he removes he his boots when the phone calls over. <laughs> That's amazing. That's like putting on a suit and tie for a conference call. If he was going to talk to a general, he was going to have his boots on. 
So his story is that he was a cavalry officer, and because they are not using horse-mounted warfare in this war, he's stuck doing something he doesn't want to do. There, through, I think throughout the German army at this point, this is post-World War One, right? And the, the Prussian nobility, the Prussian military nobility was this massive part of German culture. They were, it was a militaristic society, and these were the, the crown princes. And a lot of the G- German generals were part of this general class, right? Where their, their father had also been a general, and they were born into leadership, born into the idea that they were going to command the, the Germans. And in a real sense that their heritage or their, you know, their genes, I guess, were sufficient to be noble commanders. It's a bit like and then the, all of a sudden, kids in the uh, on the HMS Surprise, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But the Germans were much more derived from the army, or or it played a larger role in sort of political culture. The army, it was a it was a separate class, and you see that now in places like Syria or you know even Iraq, where the commanders are socially very distinct from the soldiers and making bad decisions, but they are, they're insulated by their, their social position during this war, especially it was, it was the time where the last vestige of that set that, you know, because that was incompatible with Nazism, which, and, and they're probably incompetent, but that (laughs) wouldn't have impeded their career before. And now, here they are with their $2,500 boots and this sense that they should be in charge and they're, you know, they're running a prison camp instead of, of a mechanized tank unit somewhere. Yeah, it really made you feel sympathy for his character, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm a cavalry man. How many movies at this time talked about other movies so directly? I thought that was an interesting choice to sort of... Like, there's a spell that a movie has when it's really good that just sort of coaxes you into not believing that you're watching a movie. You're just in the thing that you're watching. Hmm. And I think this is a, this is a technology. This is, this is how that's occasionally done, is when movies talk about other movies, to obscure the fact that it itself is a movie. <laughs> that seemed like, uh, like a thing that was ahead of its time. I, didn't, I haven't watched a lot of 50s movies, but do they often reference each other or the actors in them? So many things about this film, you could just see it being staged at a theater. And that, that guy, I think, in the theater would have played very broadly. Whereas in a film, you're just like, this guy with the Clark Gable impressions? I mean, you know, when's the guy with the trombone come out? <laughs> Where's the giant cane that pulls them off stage? <laughs> The scene that really that really struck me was the one where all the prisoners were dancing with one another. Mm. And it was so homoerotic. I mean, in the way that it was set up, there was always a tall soldier and a small soldier. The small soldier was, I think, generally all the pretty ones, like all of the. All of the actors that you were like, he's awfully cute to be in a prison movie. They were all in those dancing scenes, kind of, you know, in the role of the girl. Yeah. And that dancing scene was really long and involved this whole moment where Shapiro is mistaken by Animal for being Betty Grable. When they start dancing, when Animal grabs Shapiro and, and starts whispering sweet nothings in his ear as though he's Betty Grable. It would have been very easy for his hand to just slide down Shapiro's back, you know? It was very tense. All he wanted to do was tell her how much he loved her, not show her how much he loved her. Yeah, talking about the legs and the nose, like the the most chaste way of, of objectifying his imagined lover. Right, like you, you have such a cute little nose instead of like, do you know what I'm going to do to you next? Yeah, well, but that's that, you know what I'm going to do to that nose? <laughs> <laughs> but that whole scene, how do you boy, think you got to the name Animal? It was really close to the Hayes Code. You know, it yeah. was it was right up against the line of like these guys are all stuck in this camp for years. You know, throughout the war, and it was uh, it was 
pretty hot scene, actually. Is is Sefton supposed to have been actually sleeping with the Russian women? That's the implication. Getting sex right and left. <laughs> I mean, I I just wondered where that sweater vest came from. Is that why he's so chill the whole time, in spite of being under the most stress of anyone? <laughs> he's, Interesting. He's got his rocks off. Yeah. He's got his rocks off or he's wearing a sweater vest. I, I'm not sure which which one were you referring to, Adam. <laughs> I think they they both have an equal power to chill. We all know that. <laughs> yeah, sweater that, vest is that very chilling. That dance scene uh, was maybe one of the best examples of another thing I wanted to bring up, which was like Billy Wilder's shot composition shows so much depth at any given point. Like this camp is rectangular, but he always seems to shoot toward the long end. So we're seeing like the the depth in every shot. And there's there's 20 rows of people in the dance scene and they're all, I mean, none of them are out of focus. Like, and that's another thing about this film. Like I saw next to no film grain at all in it. It is beautiful. It is beautiful by today's standards, how it looks. Yeah, the, there's almost no directing the eye with with soft focus in any shot. They must have been shooting with just a ton of light. Yeah, that's the only thing that that they could have done at the time. Well, then how is it that the atmosphere is conveyed of that space being very dark and and gloomy? I mean, it's just it's it's relativity, you know, like if uh if it's all super bright, then something that is slightly less bright is a shadow and and you just expose it for that. I mean, like being on that set must have been so uncomfortable. It must have been so hot the entire time. And they're all wearing those lambskin bomber jackets. It's just unimaginable <laughs> from our standards. Yeah. <laughs> We're used to shooting with uh, with Kino flows and LED panels that make no heat at all. A lot of dark wood on the bunks, a lot of mud. Like there's a lot of contrast uh, color in this too that sort of brings the brings everything back down again there comes a time in every man's life when he wants to be left alone i liked some of the tradecraft stuff in this film too the like the secret notes and the ways of hiding objects that they're taking around the camp they've got a guy who's had his leg blown off who uh, hides a radio in the cuff of <laughs> his of his unused pant leg and they have a bucket that's got a false bottom that they hide things in. I loved the uh, the trumpet that they use as the uh, in the in the liquor distill distillery. Yeah, <laughs> that they've built in their bunk. There was a fair amount of like gremlinsing of the prisoners here. Like they all had their weird needle pegged personality. Like <laughs> especially when they would get drunk. Like that scene when they were drinking the schnapps. Like you you saw their true nature in full relief. That's when you know Animal really has a problem. And I was wondering why none of the other prisoners tried to help him. He's he's more insane than flute playing guy. <laughs> <laughs> I kept waiting for flute playing guy to he seemed like he was being set up to expose the spy. There's even yeah. a scene where they kind of show him noticing the spy doing the thing with the light, right? Yeah. Man, what a face that that actor had, and they let him go a little scraggly beard. You know that that wordless part. He really plays for all of the all of the pain that that character is going through. For all of that pain, I was also expecting a payoff from him, but more, but less in terms of him fingering the true spy, and more in terms of him having his like Linus in the spotlight during like it's a charlie brown christmas like the the emotional appeal to the rest of the pow's type speech you know i was expecting uh-huh. him to just sort of like cut through his own fog say something with incredible gravity and then go back into his coma uh-huh how fucking cold must the lieutenant have been crouching in that water he was in there for 2 days or something i mean i think he would have gotten hypothermia and had been died i it mean seems, it was christmas day it seems unsurvivable and they're in yeah they're in northern germany or then southern germany they must be in southern because they're trying to go to switzerland 
Well, yeah, they're in Bavaria, or so they they keep referring to the Danube, and so they had to have been somewhere around the Bodensee. Yeah, but there's icicles and there's like unmelted snow around. Yeah, I mean there were a few things that seemed to me to be implausible. One of them was that sitting in that water tank with his up to his knees in in freezing water, but also the character of the of the bad guy. If you put on a fake uniform. Uh, you can be firing squatted. Oh yeah, like right? it's you're, a, it's you've a, given up some Geneva Convention. Right? Yeah, right. It's a it is it's a a total breach of war etiquette. Yeah, that's um, just not fair. <laughs> no, you're right. It's not fair. What do you think? If you were in this prison, would be uh, the most valuable thing that you could get, like either by trading. Or whatever. Like, wow, you know, you could really make a life there if you just had uh, four bottles of wine and a telescope. Like, <laughs> what do you think would be the thing that would help get you through? Like, was there a yeah, thing or a character portrayed in this movie that, that got it right for you in that way? Ne- neither one of you like, guys ever smoked cigarettes. Is that right? I mean, I have smoked a cigarette, but I was never a smoker. I only did it to look cool socially uh, from time to time in college. I smoked an entire pack one weekend, and at the end I had zero desire to get another pack. I was like, well, I'm glad that's over. (laughs) I really like the toasty flavor. (laughs) You can't appreciate how much a cigarette, how important a cigarette is and what a large role it plays in your mind if you are a cigarette smoker. Um and so his, yeah, I mean, the way that they use cigarettes as money rang true to me because it would be one of the few things you could get a hold of in abundance. Yeah. And yet there's still scarcity. You can't just have as many cigarettes as you want. <laughs> and Sefton's the ultimate about it because he never consumes them. He's a cigar guy. So to be able to accumulate the currency... Like, to be the drug dealer that does not use the drugs is, like, a perfect yes. business position for him. Don't get high on your own supply. In the, in the 1980s, I, uh, I did 10 days in jail in Boulder County, Colorado. And during that time, they would not serve you coffee. Because coffee, oh. I guess, was, a, was a, a drug that, you know, some terrible stimulant that was going to cause the prisoners to riot. But they gave you as much tobacco as you could smoke. Wow. They would walk around the prison. And so the prison was overcrowded even then. This is 1986, I'm afraid to say. Uh, And so I was one of the unlucky prisoners who was not in there for murder, (laughs) who was housed on bunk beds in the gymnasium. They, you know, the, the thing was so overcrowded that they put rows of bunks in the gym and they put all the low level offenders like me who was in there on a trumped up charge, but also, you know, people who were accused of burglary and stuff. uh, John, would you say that, uh, this is bullshit, man. That's what you were (laughs) charged with. No, 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 no. I was, you know, I don't even remember the charge. Let's just say it was some kind of thing that the cops came up with. It just, you know, I, I, I was too dangerous. I was a risk to their, to their, <laughs> to their system, man. Right. They, but they saw that wavy uh, American flag on your jacket. You're asking for trouble around here, friend. They tried That's to right. give you a ride across town. <laughs> they did. They did. And the thing was, I, uh, I walked back into the center of town, but then when they arrested me, I didn't put up any resistance. Uh-huh. But they would, they would wheel through the, the gym with a cart and it had unlimited packages of top tobacco. So you had to roll them yourself, but you could just smoke all day. And I, at the time, I, I didn't smoke. I'm embarrassed to say. I was 18. But I got this top tobacco and quite a few times in the 10 days where some older prisoner would adopt me for a little while. That's where I learned to hotwire a Honda Goldwing uh, from one of those guys. Uh, and, and I may, I actually made a chess set while I was there, uh, you know, with little paper, I would, I made the little chess pieces with paper. Cause I guess a chess set too was something you wouldn't give the prisoners, but I sat and some, there was some guy that taught me how to roll cigarettes 
And so I would just sit and roll cigarettes. And I thought I was going to be a hero, but it turns out there were there was so much tobacco, nobody wanted these cigarettes that were ineffectually <laughs> rolled by this teenager. <laughs> and so I ended up with like, like a Cuban cigar rolled on the thigh of a virgin. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, I had like, I ended up with 200 rolled cigarettes that I was trying, you know, trying to choke down one a day because that, that's pretty strong stuff. And I was, I had a, a milk mustache at that point. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I would say like, anybody wants these, they can have them. And people just like, oh my God, kid, <laughs> rolling cigarettes is the one activity we all have here. <laughs> You see every type of prisoner portrayed in Stalag 17, except for the 18-year-old who just want to give, who just wants to give things to people the way you wanted to give your cigarettes away. How did that go over? Yeah. Did that get I you mean, friends? Uh, no, no. Nobody wanted. You know, nobody wants to be friends, particularly with somebody, particularly with a teenager who's not there for long. Right? There were people yeah. in that gym who were serving 15-year sentences, and I did not factor into their social strata and at one point i did a tour of the gym i walked around and realized that like the prisoners were somewhat self-segregating and i'm walking around sort of like tipping my hat to these guys like hello just doing a little walk around and it was <laughs> not cool you know oh, wow not what was meant to be i mean i was not welcome in those corners but how did you I, find you your know, own tribe of innocence uh, my tribe of innocence were the bunks next to the bathroom, which obviously, right, were the low status bunks. Uh -huh. But what that allowed me to do was wake up in the middle of the night and take a shower by myself with no other prisoners in there looking at me, which was a great relief because there was only one cop by the door of the gym. So, I mean, within the gym, you could do anything you wanted. Yeah. This one cop was never going to even stand up <laughs> out of his chair. Yeah. The time I spent six hours in jail, there were some pretty scary people in there with us, but we were a big group of 11 people that all got arrested at once, so we had this kind of strength in numbers that wound up making it a pretty amusing experience. Yeah. I, I was never afraid of the guy who had very obviously stolen a fancy SUV and drove it across the country. Uh, a couple of days ago, I had a car towed for the first time. That's about uh, the, the deepest trouble I've been in. <laughs> so, hey, guys. <laughs> um, hey, guys, what's up? I got these cigarettes. <laughs> Speaking of guys, did you guys have guys in this movie? I always resist choosing the main guy, but here's why I'm choosing Septon. All right. In the Shawshank Redemption parlance, he is red because he gets things. He's Andy because he's beaten. And by the end, he's also Brooks. Like, he, he contains every prison character. And to me, like, he's inescapably that guy because he contains all of them. There were elements of his character that I that I really identified with. I think the contrarian better was a thing that hooked me right away. I'm like, I like this guy. This is great. I could see myself doing that. But, uh, but to be, to be resented by everyone you're with was an unfamiliar feeling. And I felt great empathy for him, uh, at that moment too. So, uh, Septon is inescapably my guy. Wow. Yeah. He never caves, does he? He never, he never pleads, he never yeah. he, main, he maintains that like fuck you attitude through the entire film. He's like fuck you as he's being beaten. It's yeah. great. I didn't catch the character's name, but uh, there's a guy that kind of looks like Adam Driver. Uh, <laughs> I had that note too. And uh, he he gets a a letter from his wife, uh, and he's like he's like reading it out loud to his 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 buddy, and uh, I guess he kind of he just kind of like doesn't pick up on the comedic premise that she adopted in writing the letter, which is like, if you can believe it. And so he's repeating to himself, but I can believe it. I can. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I fancy myself to be somebody th that can make a joke. Uh, and I sometimes have a bad filter when somebody 
starts the game and it's a, uh, and I'm on the receiving end. So I just, I really identified with that guy, like really second guessing himself. Like the second he had second guessed himself, he like didn't, he couldn't get back to like thinking it was a fun letter. <laughs> he was like, wait a second. Like, what is, is she trying to say something that I'm not, or is it just, a, is it, you know, <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I, well, uh, well t- tell us what she was saying. She's saying, like, if you can believe it, uh, I've uh, had a child. <laughs> and he's like, I can believe it. Uh-huh. Yeah, there was a baby I, I, on her doorstep that looked just like her. Yeah. What a weird yeah, way to put it. Yeah, a baby on her doorstep that looked just like her. That's right. And he's like, I can believe that. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, that was actually a tragic figure, too. And I, I thought that was pretty risque that yeah. he had been away at war for two or three years. So her new baby had to have been found on the doorstep. That That's going to be a tough lie to maintain when he gets home. Well, maybe he doesn't know how it works. Yeah, right. <laughs> this war made a generation of doorstep babies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, did you have a guy? Yeah, my guy was not a guy that I especially liked, um, but he was the, you know, the kind of aggro... The guy that hated Septon the most. He had um, the best hair too, right? He had that. He had it sort of spiked up, and he looked uh, like he didn't have a leather jacket, but he looked like sort of a biker-looking dude. Is that the guy? Yep, yep. And his yeah. his shirt yeah. was always open. He had kind of a, a light beard, and he was just like he had a lot of physical energy. He was just so coiled and so so rough. You're talking about and Duke. Duke, who Duke. was played by Neville Brand. I finished the film and, and looked him up because I was like, why was this guy not a huge star Yeah, in 50s movies? And what I discovered was he was, if you look at photographs of him throughout his career, he did continue to work in movies. But this, at this moment in his life, he was beautiful. It was just like his, his peak moment, I guess, as a man. And almost mm-hmm. immediately... In every subsequent role he played, he was not the he was not the buff sex symbol. He was the sort of fleshy faced, increasingly decayed looking guy. And, you know, he kind of pockmarked. And and as time went on, you know, was just he was a character. I recognized his face because he was one of those guys that would show up on the Rockford files or he Mm. would show up on. Uh, Magnum PI as kind of like bad guy number two. So it was really, it was really curious to think of this, you know, this character and it might even just have been that in black and white, he was beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. Like he, he was, it was such a singular role for that actor. And particularly since this was a huge movie in its time, I was just really surprised. Like, why was this guy not in the wild bunch or, you know, you never saw him again, almost. Well, should we uh, select our next movie? Yeah, let's do it. We've got 52 movies to uh, to pick from now. So um, I say pick a number between 1 and 52. That's a whole year's worth of movies, isn't it? Yeah, and then once we're done with that, we can stop talking about war movies, right? <laughs> but let's see what if we go you know you've given me some there have been some op, some days where my options were like one through seven yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna go all the way out to 30 i'm gonna say let's do movie number 30 number 30 is braveheart oh <laughs> braveheart <laughs> oh i've been ruining the day and i didn't pick braveheart either wait you yeah didn't pick who braveheart? did <laughs> who put braveheart on there it wasn't me was that was that you, Adam? It was not. I wouldn't have. I didn't put it on. I if uh, if you smelt it, you dealt it. I, I think I think <laughs> it's I think this is your all your fault, John. Do we have any vetoes on this show? This is of course Mel Gibson's 1995 <laughs> epic about William Wallace. I mean, I think it's a war movie. It qualifies as a war movie. The movie that launched a thousand yearbook quotes. <laughs> I don't see how I don't see how we veto because you know then it's not then it's not random choosing then it's just like yeah keep yeah. choosing until you get one you like yeah I have a tough time with uh, Mr. Gibson 
post the revelations about what a garbage human he is. But, I but this movie was made before he was he was outed as a garbage person, right? <laughs> yeah, I definitely formed my relationship prior to that and haven't seen it since then. So it'll be interesting to uh, to reassess, I guess. Well, and particularly since the core of Braveheart is around a religious dispute. Yeah, he's a Presbyterian. Aye. <laughs> oh, are we gonna are we gonna fall into the trap of of British accents. I'm now. I'm now. I'm really excited. <laughs> it should be a fun one. Annie's. <laughs> I guess uh, I'll I'll see you guys here next week. Same wartime, same war channel. <laughs> uh, we should thank Rob Schulte, who uh, is our very capable producer editor. And um, yeah, as I was sitting here, a spider. <laughs> just came down and is building a web like literally on me (laughs) and i feel like i'm very pro spider i never kill a spider i always like pick up a spider and take it outside Mm. but i feel like this is kind of an insult yeah this is how it starts john like am i meant to just allow this guy to have free reign in in my home and just come down and build a web on top of me you're pro spider but is this spider pro you Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast Hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick Produced by Rob Schulte Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr Courtesy of Stone Agate Music And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore If you'd like to continue the conversation online Please use the hashtag Friendly Fire You can find Ben on Twitter At BenjaminAHR Adam is at Cut for Time, John is at John Roderick, and Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.